And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by a couple of your favorite people from Philadelphia. I'm Sam, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Christine, Connor, and Dave. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing doing all right. Can't complain. Hanging in. Phenomenal. Wonderful. Well, we are continuing our new theme, Dysfunctional Family, and I am so excited to share with you my pick. But first, I'd love to hear what folks have been watching in this end of the year, new year, wherever, whoever we are phenomenon. What are we watching? So I discovered a new YouTube channel that I've been um, voraciously voraciously watching, if that's how I said that correctly. Uh, The channel's called Summoning Salt, and he does these really fascinating documentaries and deep dives into the history of speedrunning in certain video games. So uh, there's a really great one on Mario Kart 64 and how this one guy from Germany wanted to hold all 32 world records that are possible in that game. So there's a world record for doing three laps on every track under a certain time, and then a world record for just a lap on each one, which adds the 32 total. And so the community struggled to battle this one person who wanted to hold all 32 records at the same time, chipping away at that, you know, going back and forth. It was some incredibly fascinating for just speed I, I, speed running. Such an interesting um, niche community, in, like the video game world. And so, not a movie, but I've watched probably 10 of his videos. Uh, just the way that he presents just these very niche communities reminds me of why I like chicken people is like, we're just getting an expose into like this small group of people who are deeply passionate about something so specific, um, like shaving seconds off of a runtime of the new super Mario brothers on the Wii. So that's what, that's what I've been watching. Not a movie, but still one to share. That reminds me of the guy who wants to own every VH VHS copy of Speed, but Dave has. I have seven. I won't. I won't. I won't allow this. Yeah, I. I will hang on to as many copies as I can. Also, well, I love this life. You know, um, the mu- The only movie I have to report is uh, I watched California Christmas two. I never watched California Christmas one, but <laughs> I was. <laughs> I was. Uh, Filled in uh, by my friends as to what happened in California Christmas one and therefore picked up this viewing with them. And uh, it was as you would expect trash, but it's kind of an interesting entry into the Netflix Christmas movie world. Uh, it's about like California wine industry, but also like it's like a Christiany movie. <laughs> it's, it's like wine meets Christians meets Netflix. So check it out if you want to. Gets the blood. Ties yeah. in. Oh, yes. Right. It, blood of Christ. It, it all comes together. Wine and Jesus, obviously. Thank you, Dave, <laughs> for building that connection in my brain. So it was not evident to me. Amen. And uh, yes, uh, I speaking of wintry movies, snowy movies, a uh, couple of weeks ago, I did have the uh, pleasure of seeing through the Philadelphia Film Society a screening of The Shining on their big screen down at the uh, Philadelphia Film Center. I don't know how many times I've seen that movie now, but uh, it's certainly a different 
a different animal on the big screen. I I don't know that I I can put my finger on the difference specifically, but like because I know the beats of that movie like you know like the back of my hand, but seeing it the big screen in a way that like I'm not comfortably in my home. I am cast in darkness and surrounded by the film sonically and visually. It really becomes that much more claustrophobic and engrossing and entrapping. So would definitely recommend uh, if anybody gets the opportunity to check that out on the big screen to go do it because it's uh, one of Kubrick's best and uh, definitely one of the more interesting transitions uh, or comparisons from my television to the big screen that I've seen. Uh, One of our mutual friends, Lauren, she told me she also recently rewatched The Shining. I can't remember exactly what she had said to me about it, but she re- <laughs> recently rewatched it and was like, "Wow, it slaps." So yeah, I guess the <laughs> you know <laughs> the winter season brings about rewatching The Shining. So all in good company, I guess. I recently watched this documentary i guess it's docu-series but it's only three episodes on netflix it's called don't hang up the phone and no wait don't pick up the phone no don't they should have hung up the phone don't pick (laughs) up the phone so essentially uh this is a three episode telling about this this dude from florida who for 10 years was calling fucking fast food restaurants like all throughout the united states i think it ended up being in like 32 states and was having like fast food restaurant managers like sexually assault some of their um employees so like trigger content warning abound Oh, it is one of the wildest stories I think I have ever heard in my whole life. And as the first episode was going on, I was just like, hang up the phone. You just have to hit one button. Yeah, Matt was talking about. Yeah, I I was watching the first episode and I texted our friend Matt and I was like, I need you to watch this, please. And so we were watching it at the same time and just like texting each other back and forth being like, can you believe this it is something that you have to see to believe because it is literally like just hang it up hang it up anyway anyway i won't i'm not gonna the managers are culpable okay anyway i have so many questions but i'm gonna save it till i've watched it and maybe it'll be answered but no. so many questions, Sam. But maybe but, they won't be, and that'll be intriguing. Unfortunately, yeah, those questions, <laughs> they never get answered because I had all of them and uh, never, n- n- no, anyway, almost as confusing and confounding is if you go on Amazon, I just unfortunately forced um, my Butter With That co-host to look at this. Um, if you, uh, I was looking at, just stuffed animals. Uh, there's a Tigger stuffed animal that it's like the the Beatrix Potter one. If you really want like something to to frighten you, uh, during this Christmas season, the Tigger stuffed animal. I can't unsee it. It's like in my brain, and we just looked at it. So sorry, I had to just share this with everybody. Um, maybe I'll post it on Instagram too, then we can all see. Anyway, dysfunction abound. Truly. So what better segue into our 
next episode. So my pick for dysfunctional family is Steel Magnolias. Now, this is very different than Krampus, um, but that's nice, right? We all like variety is the spice of life, as they say. And Steel Magnolias is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I'm glad that I could finally share it. I'm actually surprised it took me fucking four years to bring it to this group, but here we are. So um, I've seen this movie I can't even tell you how many times. Butter with that, friends. Have you seen this movie before, or was it your first watch? I'd never seen Steel Magnolias before. This is my first time. I think I must have seen it in high school or earlier because it's a very distant memory. I think I've seen the end like probably three times, but I've never seen, and then like intermittent scenes, but never have watched the entire movie all the way through. And, like, it's, like, such, like, a referenced movie that I, like, knew the plot and everything, and I know what happens. But, yeah, this was a first full-through watch for me. I'm so interested. Christine, now I'm the one with the questions of, like, why three times have you seen that ending? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it was always on TV. And, no. like, I would always happen to catch it like, right at the end. And then it's, like, oh, right, this is the movie where she dies and everyone's sad <laughs> so, yeah uh, for sure that's the movie um but now watching the full movie i'm like okay there's so much more to this movie than just the ending <laughs> very much so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and boy am i glad you finally got there <laughs> Okay, so who or what, if you are like Christine and have only seen the ending or have only seen bits and pieces of it throughout your life, what or who is Steel Magnolias? So this is a movie that came out in 1989, directed by Herbert Ross. Screenplay was by Robert Harling, and this is actually based on Robert Harling's play that came out two years before the movie. Uh, this stars Dolly Parton, my fave forever, Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis. Daryl Hannah, Julia Roberts, Dylan McDermott, Kevin J. O'Connor, and a lot more. Uh, this movie had a budget of about $15 million and made about $96.8 million. So that's pretty decent for 1989. Now, little synopsis. I stole this from Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, for some reason, my mouth wanted to say tomatoes. I don't know why. But anyway. Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> or tomatoes. Uh, this is a... <laughs> very reductive synopsis so forgive me but i was not gonna write my own i just couldn't do it today so uh malin is the mother of bride to be shelby eaton and as friend truvy jones fixes the women's hair for the ceremony they welcome a helping hand from aspiring beautician Anel dupoy uh, time passes and the women and their friends encounter tragedy and good fortune growing stronger and closer in the process truly a horrific synopsis i couldn't find one better and that's unreal but it is how the cookie crumbles i suppose or how the armadillo cake was cut um <laughs> so what'd you think of this movie overall i think i liked it uh i wouldn't say i loved it it's not a very connor movie but what i love about this podcast is that i watch movies that uh, i would not think to put on uh, it, I was I'm not surprised at all that it was adapted from a play because it definitely feels like a character centric. We're experiencing the lives of these women at pivotal moments as we pass through probably about two years of time seems to pass. 
uh, from start to finish. So definitely makes sense. It's from a play. Uh, and so I really appreciated just the time that the film takes. They kind of um, examine these characters to kind of see their ups, see their downs, examine their relationships. And the goal is not to have some kind of like super massive plot, uh, but to sort of just live with these characters and inhabit their world, which I think the film um, does really well. And just God, just who doesn't love Dolly Parton? She's just absolutely fantastic. Um, so, and, and being married to Sam Shepard, who's one of my favorite playwrights. Um, and I think, so it was just great to see him and just the idea of him and Dolly Parton together in a movie was just uh, tickled me. Um, I I would say, so I, because I just seen the ending, I, my associations with this movie was always like one of those very like melodramatic, overwrought like movies, which it's definitely got its like melodrama. But I, I was, I, I, I enjoyed the movie a lot more than I thought I would. Um, be, like, because of the performances, it's just some really, yeah, just some really surprising and grounded performances uh, that really, really make the movie wonderful. I feel like there are times where it's like some of the dialogue gets a, a little bit like, remember we're in the South, you know, or like, like sort of like Southern kind of like tropes. Uh, and then there's some moments where like, holy shit, we are in the South with some like Confederate flags going on. And you're like, uh -huh. oh, is this a critique of like the white South? Is it uh, is it not? I'm, or is it just kind of like here they are, which is interesting, like, like interesting to think about and kind of pick through. But I think the movie just shines with its performances. I mean, some really, really stellar. I think stellar performances across the board from featured performers to even the like uh peripheral marginal uh characters so uh definitely enjoyed it more than my per my conceptions of it going into watching it there's a, a line in this movie i believe it's a nell who says uh quote my personal tragedy will not interfere with my ability to do hair and i think that kind of sums up this movie in a tito way it is like it's Christine, as you've alluded to, like it, it, it seems like a uh, if, if you only know about like the beats of this movie, uh, or perhaps the ending, then it does seem like the kind of movie that would be like a wrought, overwrote melodrama that is basically a star-studded cast in a lifetime movie. But it's it's so buoyed by its humor and it, how immersive it is in terms of who these people are and enjoying moments of their lives that shine through that melodrama. And enjoying the kinship that they have with one another. And like if it went too hard in either direction, because like, you know, it could be like a soapy melodrama if it didn't have the humor. Uh, if it relied only on the humor, which is basically everyone speaking through like sassy embroidered pillow messages, then it might be too much. But it strikes an awesome balance. And I think that's largely because of the performances, um, almost all of which I think are great. Uh, I think there's one that's a little iffy, but it's also an iffy part. But on the whole, I think this movie's uh, really great. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear you all say this. Um, Connor, you're right. This is not a Connor movie. This is a Sam movie, 100%. Uh, not just because I'm bringing it to the group, not just because I love it so much, but like Jesus Christ. Uh, this movie is, <laughs> in my notes I wrote, me, in a nutshell. Yes, this movie is very, I would say like without the Confederate flags, like definitely uh, <laughs> my life is not like a commentary on like uh, the South. Uh, but other than that, yeah. <laughs> so 
I brought this movie for dysfunctional family because families are dysfunctional. That is the realest life that I have ever known that I think so many other people know. And I love this movie because it is like a a slice of life. It's, it's, I would say it's probably like three, three to four years. Um, only because we get to see Jackson Jr. grow up just like a little bit. One of the, mm-hmm. the babies. We see the movie pick up before when he's just a twinkle in his dad's eye, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> <to> <laughs> when he gets just like a little bit older. Um, I think, I'm so sorry to interrupt, Sam, but I feel like your synopsis of Still Magnolia, Still Magnolias should just be like, it's just a story about Jackson Jr. From twinkle <laughs> to to like full born. <laughs> To walking, twinkle the toddler. <laughs> twinkle the toddler. That yes, that is your synopsis. Jackson Jr. colon from Twinkle to Toddler. There it is, Rotten Tomatoes. It wasn't that <laughs> fucking hard. Jesus. <laughs> uh anyway, so the things that I would love to talk about is uh something that we've just, we we've mentioned several times over now, which is just like the stellar performances. Uh how exactly this movie goes about showing family and all the forms that family can take. And then maybe some like personal connections that I have to it. So something I've heard from um, almost everybody is just like the phenomenal performances. And in my notes here, I have um, from everybody, but from the big four. And so of course the big four are Dolly, Sally Field, uh, Shirley MacLaine, and then Olympia Dukakis. So, out of those four, is there someone who shines a bit brighter, or would you cast them all sort of the same? They're very well cast for their parts. Sally Field is like the, you know, the the emotive heart through which we experience this. Julia Roberts, uh, which I guess I, I guess that's not part of the four, but she's, you know, in the mix is, um, you know, a little bit maybe like the film tells us a bit, I guess, I guess naive, but still very hopeful. And has a lot to learn about the world through the eyes and experience of her mother. Surely McLean for me steals the show as uh, as Weezer. I, I feel this character on a spiritual level, but also her her friendship with uh, Clary I think is uh, Olympia Dukakis is uh, also really fantastic. They're a great yin and yang to each other in terms of them both being pretty surly, but one being a little sweeter and more affable, and one being pretty distant and. Their friendship makes so much sense because of that. Obviously, Dolly Parton can do no wrong. If there's anything she can't do, I don't want to know about it. She's fantastic across the board, but specifically in this movie. The one that I think is a little bit flimsy maybe is Daryl Hannah, but I don't hold that against her. I think the character is a little bit awkwardly written and doesn't have that much of an arc. But uh, across the board, I think everyone does a great job. I think that the men are extremely underdeveloped, but I think that that there's a point to that, which is interesting yet ironic, which we'll get to, but on the whole, yeah, all these, all these, uh, main stage, uh, big player performances are great. When you were sort of proposing this as dysfunctional family and I was watching and I was like, certainly within the sort of like the wedding day chaos and everything, you definitely have depictions of, uh, sort of dysfunction and chaotic family dynamics. But I think at the heart of this movie is thinking about how like familial friendships and the dysfunction within that. And I think this movie's strengths are really understanding like friendship bonds, but also both playful, but also kind of cutting deep the dysfunction that can happen within 
a group of friends who both support one another. And like, I mean, within the dynamic of Shirley MacLaine and Olympia Dukakis's dynamic uh, can also kind of like pick at each other uh, in funny from our perspective, but maybe not so funny from their perspective to the point of like the men characters in the movie. I think it's such an interesting choice by the time you get to the movie, by the end watching very subtle evolutions in their characters. Certainly they are, I wouldn't say that they're underdeveloped as in I needed more from them, but it, it they're just sort of peripheral characters. And as Dave, you've pointed out in one of like Sally Fields, like really sort of pivotal scenes, it kind of talks about sort of the, sort of the marginal role that the men kind of play in their lives, but also come through, like follow through and really, important moments too, especially in the the case of Dolly Parton's husband. Uh, And I thought their, I thought their relationship and dynamic was one of the most interesting parts of the movie, but yet their scenes were so short and there was very little dialogue that really fleshed out the relationship. But like their arc, I thought was so, so interesting. In their arc in particular, so Dolly's character, her name is Truby Jones. Her husband, his name is Spud. Uh, they set it up as Dolly Truvy is the kind of breadwinner. She is the one who has the salon and Spud is like a contractor, but he's consistently unemployed. And then as the years go on, he jumps from job to job to job. And because he doesn't have this like steady income and he's not like the, the man of the house, he is definitely dealing with some type of depression and, and um, a, an aversion to not wanting to be with Truvy, but wanting to be out in public. So he doesn't go to Shelby's wedding. He he doesn't go to the like Christmas festival that they have. He doesn't really do anything. However, there is a moment where he says, like, God, if if I lost my wife, I would be devastated. I wouldn't want to live anymore and so that love between them is real and um in my notes i actually have this is why their relationship in particular one of the reasons why this movie is so special to me is because um spud not having this consistent employment is never demonized it's just a way of life and it's something that like truvy while not happy with she gets and she does her best and she moves on from. And that is a dynamic that is very familiar to me in my life and in my family. And I think that, like, what a beautiful thing to show that there's there's nothing wrong or um, inherently unmanly about not having consistent employment and things like that. So, you know, like... A plus for this movie and for the play. And the play, by the way, um, Robert Harling based it on his sister. Um, his sister died from type one diabetes. She had a, a she, basically Shelby, Julia Roberts. Um, Julia Roberts, her character ends up dying in this film because um, she has diabetes. She doesn't listen to her doctor who says like having children would be, make your life like really difficult. So she does. And then uh, her kidneys start failing even after having a kidney transplant that she get, gets a donation from her mom from Malin. And, um, 
um, she ends up dying because of it. And that, that happened to Robert's sister. So like, this is all probably based on people that he had in his life. And so that's even more interesting that the male characters are so like peripheral or underdeveloped too. He also like in a key moment, I mean, that final scene with them, he like shows her the new store. She's I love the line with Dolly. She's like, Oh my God. <laughs> it's such a good line. And so you see that like, yeah, kind of that moment where like, he's just, like supporting her and and uh, celebrating in her sort of business successes as well. I guess I only bring that to the to attention uh, this the way that it treats uh, the male characters in the movie because I find it to be an interesting version of thousands of other films that we've seen. Right, like I mean, this is chiefly the story of um, uh, community and connection shared between women, and as such, uh, the men aren't as as central tentpole figures at least within the context of how the story, how we navigate these these women's lives. Um, that having been said, a lot of what they have to say about their lives traces back to men that we don't know much about, which I think is 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 odd. I mean, I do like, I do appreciate that, like, and I get a laugh out of, in fact, like, especially um, Malin's family, like the men in her life, her two sons and her, fa- uh, her husband. Uh, Tom Skerritt, by the way, of alien fame, Dallas, who is going like full caddyshack on these birds at this wedding reception, which is really great. But like, I feel like, you know, it treats them as like blustery, like, um, like, like golden retrievers let loose in the house to like wreak havoc. And they're just scamps. Uh, but I don't really know who they are or how that relates to how Sally Field interacts with them in a way that informs her character. I think that also applies a little bit to Dolly Parton. It, it does open my eyes, Sam, you describing that a little that dynamic a little bit more in depth. I wish I saw more of it on screen. It has something more tangible because it does feel as though Spud, Sam Shepard, uh, her husband, is just sort of like this deflated man who is maybe a little bit feeling like emasculated by not being the breadwinner and everything. But then at the end, he just sort of has a change of heart because someone died and becomes more open and it doesn't really build toward that. I, I and I appreciate that this is a movie about women for women, well, for everyone. But, you know, it, it, it really speaks to uh, a lot of things about femininity and doesn't paint women as a monolith, which is great. But uh, in the way that it does that with some of his male characters, I don't think like I'm not like going on some like men's rights rant that it ruins the movie because men need to be big characters it's just like they're they're a little bit too underbaked in terms of how important they are to how we understand these women's lives but again i don't think it's a huge problem i i like the charm of that but i think it's it maybe weakens it just a bit i would say that tom scarrett's character is under underbaked i would say spud it's I thought the movie so beautifully establishes kind of their relationship. He seems just like a man of few words, you know, and I don't want a movie that mm-hmm. like has explainy dialogue and has a character who wouldn't pour out his emotions through dialogue. And certainly they could have had more scenes, but I thought that was a really wonderful, subtle sort of side story. Yeah, just but so great. Potatoes are so important in this life. <laughs> we always need starches. And I think that um, Spud really, really shows that, really showcases it. <laughs> um, I think what's sure. great about this B arc is how it informs the primary story. And I think this screenplay does a really great job of, while it's not 
plot forward. We're like intersecting with these characters and examining their lives in different ways. And I think this B, you know, kind of like the B story, you know, A story is Sally Field, Julia Roberts. B story is Spud and Truvy. I think really informs the certainly marital relationships that exist in this world that we're setting up. And there's even a line of where, oh, it's the 1980s. Women can, you know, do all sorts of things. And so I think it's interesting that their relationship, one of the aspects of it I found interesting was kind of like a brief examination of and kind of thinking about women's roles, men's roles in relationships. Yeah. And and I think the reason why I picked this as dysfunctional family is because the, the family we see is not one particular uh, group of people who share DNA. It's the whole community at large. And you can see the dysfunction and function all throughout. Uh, <laughs> one thing in particular that just like ran across my eyeballs is when uh, Clary is the like sportscaster for the football team and <laughs> they're in the locker room right after a game and she's commenting on the colors of the football team's uniforms um white pants you know i really don't understand why you would go with that you can really see green <laughs> grass stains meanwhile weezer's also there in the locker room and you just see like bare ass after bare ass um <laughs> weezer's like looking at these men as they're completely naked walking by and she's like are you nuts you sound like a fool you sound like an idiot here <laughs> and i just i love that moment of function dysfunction i think it's so fucking funny oh my god i was just saying i think honesty too is what makes it so funny of that character speaking their minds in sort of different ways. And I feel like that is one element of the humor that makes this movie so incredibly relatable, even though I'm not Dolly Parton, unfortunately, or not some kind of Southern, <laughs> uh, Southern lady running a house uh, because the characters are so have such a specificity and are written from such an honest place and how they communicate with each other feels genuine, feels authentic. I think we can all kind of identify shades of folks in our own lives who mirror kind of the characters that we're seeing. I think that's what makes the humor and the drama so effective, which makes what could be soap opera-y or kind of tonally disjointed. What works so well is because there is so much drama and humor in our own lives and our own daily, you know, kind of comings and goings with our friends and family. And I think because the screenplay feels just so authentic, um, what could be stereotype or could be melodramatic, only melodramatic, has a real emotional truth to it, which I think is just pretty outstanding. I don't think it wants, I think it has a nice embrace of melodrama. I think it it knowingly leans into melodrama, mm-hmm. but has a way of suggesting that like melodrama, like the act of storytelling and melodrama is like there, there's something there and real and it's it's a story that pulls at the heartstrings and I feel like it yeah I I like yeah that's all I'll say I I think it it's not a dismissal or or it's not it's not this movie overcomes melodrama I think it embraces it in its fullest sense as like a as like an emotional medium almost uh in in a really nice way and I think what stopped you know, we're using the word melodrama a lot, which is not necessarily a pejorative word. 
But what mm-hmm. doesn't make it feel shallow, I think the funeral scene, sorry, Sam, if, we're, if I'm jumping ahead like 20 minutes into the episode, <laughs> but the funeral scene is, I, you know, I was aware that there was a funeral scene in this movie that was Sally Field. Like, I just culturally, it's hard not to be aware of something, you know, a scene like that. Uh, but I think what surprised me was the beats of that scene of how it's not just, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I'm sad. And then the scene's over. But there's a moment where she has a further breakdown and her friends have to try even harder to pick her back up. Like it's layered. It's not just the character, you know, uh, you know Sally Field feels one way. Character says something. She feels one way or the other. And the scene ends. It's these conversations are textured layered and scenes are allowed to breathe allowed to play out uh and characters don't get you know don't achieve their objective in every scene if we want to break down beat by beat see you know like kind of actor's toolkit you know objectives are being challenged a lot and overcome in this really realistic way and i think the funeral scene just proves why it's not eye rolling and okay whatever movie you're just trying to make me cry but you cry because it feels so real and you know it's I've experienced some loss throughout my life. Like the roller coaster of emotion just felt very authentic. And of course, jumping back to the beginning of our conversation, the performances knock it out of the park. Great writing, great performances, um, just equal instant success, I guess is the ultimate point uh, that I'm leading to. Plus that intersection of humor and uh, as as we've already established, you know, it's it's not a pejorative melodrama because it is what it is. And it, Christine, as you mentioned, it does wholeheartedly embrace that, especially in that funeral scene. And Connor, as you've mentioned, yeah, the 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 beats flowing in and out of one another from it being cathartically um, melodramatic to cathartically humorous and doing it like several times within one scene. Uh, it, it just sort of makes it all the more real because life is not a melodrama and life is not a comedy it is in equal measure both and uh, this movie understands that yeah and i think that there are three scenes in particular that weave in the humor the melodrama and the reality so well and i mean we keep talking about the funeral obviously that's one of them but the the ones that come to mind for me right off the bat preparing for shelby's wedding they're all at Truvies. Uh, Shelby goes into a diabetic shock and everything had been fine up until that point. Shelby had been talking about getting married to Jackson, talking about some of like the, the, the racier moments that they had and some of the disagreements that they've had um, throughout the whole like wedding planning process. And then all of a sudden she starts um, like almost comatose. She starts like vomiting and shaking. And then the, the, the whole crew with the exception of um, Daryl Hannah, because she's like brand fucking new in this moment. Um, they jump into action. They knew immediately what to do. Get the orange juice. Go find candy. Go do something. And they walk her through it. All all of them. All four women try to help J- Shelby, Julia Roberts' character through this. Um, and it's such like a, like a simple, quiet moment. That could be like really chaotic and could be really over the top. But somehow they're just able to, to wind it back down in such a like a... Like a like if it was a worse screenplay and if it was worse actors, it wouldn't work, but it does. And then the the next scene is Shelby's pregnancy announcement. Her dad just shares it with the whole party. And Malin 
is off to the side and is clearly upset. Weezer realizes it and then slowly but surely that the rest come in and they're all like, hey, isn't this great? Oh, this isn't great news. And then they just sit there in silence, quietly talking about it while everything else is like exploding with happiness around them. And it is, what an interesting choice. What a real choice to do because Melinda's really worried about her daughter. And then of course, you know, you follow it up with the funeral. I was going to quickly add, yeah, the way that that scene ends also, I mean, they they all rally around her and try to reassure her, uh, that being Malin, about uh, her concern for, for her daughter. And just being there, being present with her and acknowledging and validating her concern, but reassuring her and that resulting in the stacking of the hands. And you can see that, like, you know, though uh, Malin, uh, Sally Fields' character is still, like, in the throes of this news and it being a serious problem that she is, is foreseeing in that moment when she's amongst her friends and recognizing, like, it's not, it's not her, like when she finally puts her hand on top as well and joins all of them, you can tell that she's not at peace with this, but she is happy to have her friends knowingly seeing her through it. Yeah. And so I feel like Malin's arc is so interesting because it, it says so much about this, navigation of being a realist, but also sort of the performative things you do even amongst your closest friends, but like as, as sort of like a reassuring gesture to other people and yourself. And I think the movie does such a great job of like, it's not only like, you know, putting on a good face, but it's like trying to grapple with intense life moments that are both recognizing the severity of a moment and the, the realness of something that could potentially be like life or death, but also trying to kind of, it's not so much put on a good face, but like acknowledge it and then move and then just sort of find some levity as well. And, and I think that Sally Field's performance is so wonderful that she can convey that character is constantly weaving between, especially the beginning, she's very much like controlling mother, you know, like pragmatist. Uh, like, how could you pink, pick two shades of pink for your wedding hue? You know, like- The like, wedding looks crazy. <laughs> it's so great. I love it. Yeah. And so like her mother's like, what were you thinking, Shelby? And that watching that Malin as a character, uh, and then- sort of apply that what what are you thinking Shelby when Shelby's like I want to get pregnant and I'm gonna get pregnant and she's like no this is gonna this is gonna impact your health like what what is going on in your brain until later when it's decided she's gonna contribute or she's gonna donate her kidney to Shelby and then you could see her tapping into that energy of like trying to access some levity being like this is the choice we've made. I want to be with my family and I want to access some joy in being a part of this relationship with my daughter and my family. And like, I find that just so real, you know, and like trying to like find that, find that kind of like joy and like really intense situations. And you can see her kind of shift. And then in that final, you know, like classic scene, as Connor was pointing out, you see the beats of her going through that roller coaster of emotion as well. And yeah, I really give it to Sally Field for being able to handle like that kind of 
like character motion. Yeah. I mean, Malin, but all of them. The all of them, yeah. Unconditional love. That's what it is. And, you know, I have gotten into so many arguments with my mom about my health and about so many other things. And I know she doesn't agree with the decisions that I make in my life. I know she hates the piercings that I have on my face. I know she doesn't like all of my tattoos. But, you know, despite that, she still says, how is it going? How did it heal? Can I see it? When are you going to get a different uh, ring for your septum? When are you going to do this? That's unconditional love. You know, like, I don't agree, but... You like it, and I'm going to be there for you. And that's what Malin does, and 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 they all do. Malin, I mean, how much she loves Jackson Jr. And you know, when when Shelby dies, uh, the first thing she does, she gets out there and she's like, "Okay, you need to bury her in a pink suit. You need to call this person, and I'm going to go get that kid." And she does, right? Like she she doesn't even listen to anybody else. Nobody else says anything to her, and she just goes and gets that child. Um, just like God, Sally Field, man, like Jesus, it's so good. She's fantastic. The blocking, the blocking of that particular moment, if we can just get really nitty gritty, is so theatrical. Think about the levels. I believe she's the only one standing. She's certainly the only one kind mm-hmm. of focus in the front of the camera. The only one well lit in this waiting room so like kind of foregoing realism for embracing the kind of more dramatic effect of she is standing she's in focus the men are sitting i think her one son is like up against the wall on the back behind her and just the blocking of that moment just really struck me as uh maybe that's kind of how it's staged in the play not sure unfamiliar but it just felt very like just so well shot so well executed like most of the movie is but that particular moment of like just that is using physicality to like support character choice, character dialogue, the whole, that's when the whole, you know, everything's functioning together, work interlocking perfectly. Right. I mean, that's a steel magnolia right there. You know, she's this tiny, small woman. She's standing strong while the, the other men there are just, you know, sitting down. And I think there's actually like a moment where they talk about like men are supposed to be steel, but they're so emotional and blah, 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 blah. But there she is like, like embodying the actual title and everything that this film is, is all about. And yeah, I mean the, the physicality, like you said, Connor, what a moment. And interestingly enough, as far as I know, the play takes place entirely in Truvy's salon. So all of these additional scenes are inventions of the movie, which, you know, might be one of those rare examples of um, like a film heightening the play material in a by by adding things to it. Sort of the opposite of maybe uh, the whale, as we discussed last week. I mean, I think that it, you know, what helps is that the person who wrote the play is the person who's writing the screenplay, right? So that certainly is going to make things feel as authentic as possible. I could talk about this movie forever. Is there anything else that folks wanted to make sure we mention? One thing I learned is that uh, Herbert Ross, the director of this film, uh, was supposedly something of a terror on set. Uh, Mm. Was very, very cruel and very uh, critical to almost an excessive degree of especially Julia Roberts and uh, the nerve dolly parton supposedly so much so that the the crew of the, the the actresses the the community that the film portrays 
uh, did really kind of have to band together to say collectively, like, hey, this is unacceptable, which is the kind of thing that, like, I'm sure, like, behind the scenes probably did, like, strengthen, you know, their their performances and their bond uh, in a way that should in no way be a credit to Herbert Ross creating an unsafe set. That's just, you know, it, it's kind of just proof that uh, the, these communities can really support and rise uh rise to the occasion of going to bat for one another and uh not only do they in the movie but apparently while making the movie and uh good on them and it sounds like uh herbert ross is kind of a dick i guess this is my takeaway from that so the i watched this on amazon and the x-ray was like uh herbert ross asked or was like so frustrated with a moment like the a scene that dolly parton was shooting he was like dolly can you act and she's like, no, but it's your job to make me look like I can. <laughs> Which is right. Like a, such a great retort because it's like, obviously, Dolly Parton can act. She's been in some classics, you know, like Nine to Five, Last Warehouse in Texas, you know, all of these. And, mm-hmm. but like the retort, it's like, no, but fucking do your job is a wonderful, wonderful, like, way to get back. Yeah. Um, there is no one better at a clap back than Dolly Parton, uh, even to this day, I swear to God. And it's because, like, she's so pure in general that, like, why would you ever go after her is something that I, I can't personally understand. This is a true saint. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I have here in my notes. So I, I can't remember if I've discussed this on the podcast before, but um, I have that. What do they what do they call that? um synesthesia where you you see like names numbers well for me names numbers months people as colors and dolly parton for me is pink pink is a color that is so special to me it's my favorite color and it's one that like i think that is pure good and it's everything that you want to be like it's the best kind of person and i I aim to be pink. That's what I want to be in my life. And I, and I see myself as pink, but like, I shouldn't, but you know, Dolly Parton is pink. And it's so funny to me when I was like rewatching this, because the, the similarities that I have with Shelby, is her like blush and bashful. It's, <laughs> it's wild. It's wild. And, you know, maybe this movie has a part of like why I do see colors the way that I do and why I do hold pink to such a high regard. But, um, Dolly, Dolly is one of the only people I know that actually are pink for me. And that actually, I do, I, I don't want to belabor this, but I do want to bring up something that I I wrote here is, uh, why this movie means so much to me. So I watched it a lot as a kid, uh, loved it. Um, Dolly has always featured in my life. I love her so much, but it's become even more meaningful to me as an adult. So, uh, like maybe around like 20, oh, I can't remember, like 12 or so years ago, I got diagnosed with PCOS, which is um, essentially like a hormone problem. I have a huge hormone imbalance. I have like insulin resistance. And uh, when I was diagnosed uh, in the same breath that this doctor told me that I had PCOS, she was like, yeah, you're probably not going to be able to have children. And I was like absolutely devastated. And I never went back to this doctor. Um, she was one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. And like a source of a lot of like trauma for me, uh, actually, but, um, 
I was like fucking devastated. I cried so much. And it's still something that I have to every once in a while, like still deal with. And so like Shelby's whole journey and her experience, um, I, I appreciated when I was a kid, but then as an adult and I got diagnosed with that. And and when I say adult, I mean, like I was like 19, I think, um, I remember her character and I remembered this journey and I was like, Oh shit. And I watched the movie again. And I remember like the whole thing hitting so close and again, I cried, but it was like kind of like a, a coping mechanism and I felt seen and it, it just, it's so important for people to see representation in every single way possible to see themselves on screen, uh, either on the big screen or on your TV screen. And this is just one of them, you know, women are women, whether they can carry children or they can't, you know, like, um, or or whatever whatever there there's so many variations upon that too but it was just nice to see someone else dealing with that and it not be again demonized right like it not be a bad thing it was actually something that's people deal with people people live and 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 die with as sad as that is but so now this this movie is just such a such a big part of me forever um because of that too so movies matter representation matters um yeah that's all i have to say there any anything else about steel magnolias that we didn't get to uh it's like dolly parton says in that iconic funeral scene that's laughing through tears is my favorite emotion (laughs) and this movie delivers on both fronts uh cathartically so on both fronts uh it's one that i am kicking myself for not making a more regular rotation in my life so i'm happy to have discussed it and i'm looking forward to watching it more as time goes on yeah, this is definitely a moment that made me appreciate you guys, appreciate the podcast, bringing such an amazing film and a classic that I've never seen. And just really enjoyed this discussion. Was so happy that I got to watch it and then have, you know, talk about it with you smart guys you know, on here. So I just, this movie just made me really appreciate our own little community um, that we built. I watched, so I'm recording from my parents' house right now. So I watched it with my mom. And that's, it's like uh-huh. an intense, it's an intense movie to watch like with your mom that like so dissects like a mother daughter relationship. As you're talking about Sam, like, like thinking about like mother dis, like disproving of certain choices or thing, you know, but at the end of the day, well, I mean, all families are different, you know, but it definitely was like an interesting movie to like watch like next to my mom. And we were both like, Tear, tear, tear. <laughs> Did she keep turning to you and being like, no, that haircut is good. It's a good haircut. Right, yeah. No, I totally approve of and agree with every <laughs> choice that you, sartorial choice that you make. <laughs> also, she's so upset about that haircut. It looks great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, I know, I know Julie Roberts is not in the top four. And I know that her like Southern accent comes in and out. But I really, for like, I don't know what movie she was in before the Steel Magnolias, but really this was kind of like a breakout role for her. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I really thought she brought it. Like I thought she was wonderful to watch. Yeah. I mean, she, yeah, I think I was a little unfair when I didn't include her in like the, <laughs> the big floor because she certainly acts her heart out in this movie. And she also, um, so 
in the movie Shelby marries uh, Jackson, played by Dylan McDermott, a very young and very hot Dylan McDermott. And they actually uh, fell in love on set and they got engaged. They called off their engagement a year later, but they did fall in love on the set. (laughs) That would have been so funny if they had gotten married and just recreated the entire tableau, like the whole pink everything from the movie set. Well, hopefully they don't recreate the whole thing or we don't get Aaron Brockovich. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And we need that. Um, Should I ever get married? You best believe my colors are going to be blush and bashful. And I assure you, I will have an armadillo cake and red velvet (laughs) will be (laughs) what the cake is. Are you going to have those Easter hats for all of your brides? (laughs) Uh, All nine of them, right? All nine. Oh, my (laughs) God. Standing on a shelf of their own. (laughs) It was like the 80s was a wild time for fashion. And this movie is clearly poking fun at like 80s fashion. So it's like 80s take on 80s fashion is like a wonderful thing to see. And Weezer's line too about like here, take my tomatoes, take my tomatoes, take my tomatoes. Like, why do you even grow tomatoes? It's like, well, I'm a southern woman, so I gotta grow stuff out of the dirt and wear the stupid hat. Uh, I, th- that was that's just that reminded me of. That was a great moment. Yeah, it's like critiquing of like southern culture, poking fun, critiquing, like acknowledging the time that it's living in. Which like 1980, like just I think very impressive for a movie the late 80s to have such a referential view of itself uh, and enjoying that and incorporating that into the storytelling was also another layer of humor. Self-aware and good was not the 80s uh, strong suit. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Before Uh, we wrap up, that armadillo cake was so upsetting. It was described (laughs) as gray. It was so red. It It looked so slimy and so blood like bright red. I was so upset. I was. But it was funny when Weezer cuts the ass off of the the armadillo. And gives it to him. Dallas saying nothing like a good piece of ass. Well, he eats the ass of an armadillo cake. I loved the the aunt who makes the armadillo cake. Is like, oh, I just make all different shapes, but I can't do snakes because I don't have the counter space. It's just so fucking funny. It only pops up like twice, three times in the whole movie. Uh huh. And like she says that, and Weezer is just the look on her face as she says that. It's like, <laughs> my soul has left my body. Anyway, this movie is great. Please watch it if you haven't seen it already. And even if you have, give it another watch. And whether you laugh, whether you cry, something to, to cut the humor, to cut the sadness, a cup of flour, a cup of sugar, and a cup of fruit cocktail, and ice cream on the side. That's all you need. <laughs> Ice cream Um, to cut the sweetness, as Dolly would say. (laughs) As she would. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. I'm excited for what we have coming up with Dysfunctional Family. And thanks to Movie John for having our podcast on there. Folks, I hope you have a a good whatever. I cannot. Mom is literally going to bed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were going past 10, I understand. Yeah, it is 10 oh nine. He's like right there. My mom is like, 
Hi, Hi Christine. Mrs. Weber. <laughs> well, have a good evening, everybody. <laughs> have a good whatever, y'all. Oh, God, we're still alive. <laughs> This has been a Movie John podcast.